Hey everybody, welcome to week four. It is day 39 on the self-quarantine count-up, almost at my second row of hash marks. I uh, hope everyone out there is uh, staying sane, learning some stuff, having a good quarter despite the current circumstances. So this week in our public reform class, I'm going to be looking at two specific, uh, and I'll also confess, completely made up by me, uh, political reforms centering around the presidency. Um, today I'm going to be talking about reinventing the Oregon presidential primary, uh, and there's a reading associated with this, directly associated with this, which is the initiative to alter Oregon's primary election process. I have it here on my clipboard with some notes. Um, you should, uh, it's, a, it's just one page, uh, you should download it and read it before watching this lecture. So if you haven't read that part yet, pause. Uh, and read it. It's only one page. Um, the other reading assigned for today, you can read either before or after the lecture. It's, it's, it's not particularly uh, um, necessary to do it beforehand, but definitely the initiative to alter Oregon's primary election process. This initiative was written by me. Um, it is not the, a final form of what a ballot measure, uh, excuse me, uh, of what a ballot measure would look like, um, <clears throat> and it has definitely not been put forward in any way as like uh, legally uh, analyzed in terms of you know is the language right would it meet the single issue uh, requirement uh, is it does it actually contain all of the things that are needed um, <clears throat> so this is an this is an amateur first draft of a ballot measure but the basic idea is there and if I were a political entrepreneur if I were somebody who wanted to uh, sort of take the initiative to start this initiative, not to use a terrible pun, but I just did, sorry about that. Uh, but if I were going to say, this idea really grabs my heart and I wanna spend the next couple years of my life working towards making this happen, uh, this, is, this is not a bad place to start. Though, what I would wanna do next is I would wanna take this idea and probably actually make it less specific uh, at, in a um, written form uh, to begin building a coalition to uh, help me get this on the ballot and get it across the finish line to a, to a yes vote, or to help me figure out whether or not the statutory pathway was really the better uh, and more likely pathway, as well as potentially necessary because the uh, single issue, I'm not gonna be able to make this into a single issue ballot measure. It could, it could be that it is actually too complex of a system being asked for, even though to me it's just one change. So uh, if I were going to do this, this imagine me at the beginning of this process of saying, well, here's how I want this to go. Um, Oregon's presidential primary in 2024 uh, will follow this model if uh, either it is a successful ballot measure that can, subs uh, that can survive legal challenges or it is a law passed by the Oregon uh, legislature. So uh, today I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of this concept uh, and how it relates to political reform in general. And I'm also going to talk about how I would begin talking about this concept to uh, potential coalition partners. And in a way what I'm going to be doing is making an argument for it to you. So you are the potential, you're the, the simulated version of the potential uh, coalition partners. Um, on uh, for I was about to say on Thursday, I'm not going to do it on Thursday, I'm going to probably do it either later this afternoon or tomorrow. Um, uh, the next class this week in week four is a sample speech that I will be doing on the idea of the presidential referendum, which I, is, is 
I, I claimed earlier that these are just my ideas. I have not read anything about a presidential referendum. I'm sure that idea is out there. Um, but I will be talking about, in the lecture for the class, I will be talking about why, what the idea behind the presidential referendum is, how I cooked up that idea, why it seems to make sense. Um, and then I will also be producing, separate from that, and that'll be a short, relatively short lecture, um, just to kind of explain the concept, so that when you listen to the speech, uh, it, you, you have some background on it. Though you, you shouldn't need background. Part of the purpose of the speech uh, and you can listen to the speech first even, um, is to actually speak directly to an audience and explain to them everything they need to know about a particular reform that you're asking for and then to make an argument for it. Um, so that's what's coming up this week. So I'm looking at two different aspects of uh, the political system that relates to the presidency. One is the Oregon primary, which kind of by extension is a reform oriented at or aimed at the, pro the presidential nominating process. And then on the flip side, the referendum is, would be a new tool that would be handed to the presidency to get something uh, enacted into law uh, that uh, would um, you know, increase the legislative powers of the president. Uh, <clears throat> so that's what's coming up this week. So before I talk about this particular, the, the uh, initiative to alter Oregon's primary election process, kind of a clunky name, would probably need a better name uh, for it, but I'm not thinking strategy at all yet. I haven't even put my coalition together. I'm, I'm really just at the development stage uh, <clears throat> and really kind of doing the, the, the background work. But I want to talk about naturalism and political reform. Naturalism is the enemy of political reform in one way, uh, in one very important way. It's not a declared enemy, but it's a, it, it actually works strongly against political reform. Naturalism is the idea that things the way they are, are the way they are supposed to be. It's the way they naturally are. Um, the naturalism as a kind of uh, a, a philosophy um, would express and say, okay, the way things are is they've developed naturally, they've evolved, the, there's a reason why they are that way. Um, naturalism is usually used as a critique, which is to say that people assume a kind of naturalist, uh, natural uh, nature, naturalness, to things that are human-made and capable of being remade by human beings. Um, but there's a kind of uh, an aura, or even, uh, and Marx has used this term uh, fetish, there's a kind of a fetish of uh, this process or this institution or this particular role that makes it seem untouchable. Uh, for example, I think that the nine-member Supreme Court has this supremely powerful aura of naturalism. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, there, I know there are a lot of Americans who, who probably believe that that's in the Constitution, right? And it is not in the Constitution. Um, there have been a number. There were a number of presidential candidates for the Democratic uh, nomination last spring that were actually talking about proposals to expand the size of the Supreme Court for various reasons, um, and that that effort might have educated some people to the fact that the Supreme Court can be bigger than nine or smaller than nine. Um, but uh, that notion has a form of naturalism, which it's always been that way, which it hasn't. It's only been that way since the 1860s. Um, and also, it's supposed to be that way. That's the right way for it to be. Now, there is also an argument that it's the right way for it to be that doesn't, land, that doesn't uh, uh, 
intellectually rely on naturalism, right? We could make a pro-con argument about why uh, a smaller or a larger court or a differently composed uh, judicial system is worse than the one we currently have, and this is the best of the available options. That argument wouldn't rely on this naturalism, but the acceptance of the nine-member Supreme Court would rely on the kind of a, a naturalistic uh, background. Many people would, would support keeping it that way, not because of the pro-con argument, uh, but because it just seems like it's supposed to be that way. Um, there are a number of things in our political system that have uh, or partake of this aura of naturalism. And I, and I would say that most of the things in our political system actually have some degree of naturalism uh, supporting them. Uh, that It's always been that way, and it's supposed to be that way. Uh, this is how it is. Um, and that that is an enemy of political reform because before you can even move towards achieving a change in how our political system works. You have to crack this naturalism apart and you have to essentially get people to accept that the way things are now was a construction, is a construction, and it's held up by constitutional uh, language or statute or uh, judicial uh, rulings, whatever, whatever actually holds it up, holds it up. But even more so, it is only held up by people's belief and expectation that that is the way it's supposed to be. So one of the first tasks of a political reform movement is cracking that sense of naturalism. Uh, now today I'm talking about the, the specifically the Oregon presidential primary, but really by extension I'm talking about the entire presidential nominating process. And one of the things about the nominating process is it is not necessarily the best way for parties to choose their general election candidate for the presidency. Uh, and <clears throat> there are, I won't go through today all of the reasons why it's a particularly flawed uh, system and why there are actually better proposals uh, for it. Um, I'll just point out that people just are like, well, the parties must, because they choose this process, they must have chosen the one that makes the most sense to them because they want the strongest general election candidate. Now, there's no doubt that parties want the strongest general election candidate, but that doesn't mean that the process that currently exists fulfills that need and that desire. Uh, they can stand side by side. And why would there be some kind of disjuncture between what clearly the parties have a, uh, like the strongest interest possible in, right? Why would a party not want the best possible general election candidate? Um, it's foolish, right? Yet the system doesn't give us that. And I would say that one of the reasons why the system doesn't give us that is that the early voting states are highly unrepresentative of the electorate as a whole. They're also highly unrepresentative of the parties themselves um, and because they have such an outsized importance in conferring frontrunner status, which brings with it uh, fundraising opportunities that uh, the candidates further back in the pack don't have, it brings media attention, it brings a narrative that the media can latch onto and that the campaign itself can, can amplify of a winner, it brings uh, a, a sense among the other candidates that somebody uh, is, needs to, that, that person's ideas so far are the ones that are the strongest and they have to attack those ideas and convince people away. Uh, the front runner is, front runner status is super important. It doesn't have to be only one person, but the top two or three max people. Iowa and New Hampshire 
are stupendously unrepresentative, both of the country as a whole and of the electorate of both the Democratic and the Republican parties. Um, it's a little bit less unrepresentative of the Republican Party electorate, uh, which itself skews more towards white and more evangelical and more uh, libertarian. New Hampshire and Iowa uh, both uh, skew in those directions. But even, even with the uh, sort of those states being close, more closely aligned to the Republican electorate, it's still, there are many other states that are more representative and that would be really good early tests of the candidates that would tell us more about how well they're gonna do in the, uh, um, in the general election. Why are Iowa and New Hampshire first? Well, the reason why they're first is, the, is a, a common, I'll tell the story in a second, but it's a common, uh, reason why things are the way they are, but don't map onto or uh, join with what you would think they're supposed to serve, right? What is the presidential nominating process supposed to serve? It's supposed to serve the parties to get their strongest, best general election candidates. The ones who can speak best to the general election audience that's going to decide who the president is. And of course, who's really going to decide who the president is? moderate independent voters in large swing states. So the parties themselves have an interest in uh, finding candidates who can appeal to them. Yet the nominating process begins with two states that are neither of those. They are neither uh, um, uh, large swing states, nor do they have big bodies of people who, will, who would look like and think like and vote like uh, moderate um, independent voters in the country as a whole. And even if you go further into the calendar, the next one is, uh, is Nevada and then South Carolina, you have to get pretty far into the calendar before you actually hit a state that would be a really good bellwether, or in fact hit a state that is itself a swing state. Um, why? Well, the, the story is that prior to 1960, excuse me, prior to 1972, up to the 1968 presidential election, the uh, parties chose their nominees at their national convention. Now, there's still a national convention for both parties, but the national convention is no longer really a convention. It's a show. Uh, it's a party. And it is, there, there is some business conducted at it. The platform committee actually kind of finalizes the, the, the very final versions of, the, of the, what the platform is going to be. Um, and that there, there are some adaptations between, say, uh, May and July uh, of what the platform looks like. So there's a little business done, but really it's mostly a show. It's a coming out party. It's a kickoff to the general election. Um, it's, an, it, it's an attempt to show party unity, party diversity, all of that stuff. It's, a, it's political theater. It didn't used to be that way. Until 1968, the national conventions that had started in the middle of the 18th century were business conventions. They were events where party operatives, party leaders, party insiders, people who worked at the local, county, and state level in the Democratic and Republican parties, they got together at a convention to make decisions. And of course, the biggest decision they were making was who their presidential nominee was going to be, and there were, and then of course who the vice president was going to be, uh, which was, you know, now the president, the presidential nominee gets to pick the vice president. There was a certain amount of like, okay, you pick, but also we're going to help you pick. Um, and then the platform was really put together in a much more real way. The national convention was a democratic event. It was people who were elected 
by their local, uh, essentially, party constituents to go to this convention to be a delegate, to then cast their vote on important decisions. And of course, the most important decision being who the presidential nominee was going to be. So it was a form of <clears throat> democracy, much like the U.S. Constitutional Convention was, and much like Congress itself is, right? Each of those bodies was made up of delegates uh, who were chosen locally to go represent a local interest and make collective decisions through a democratic uh, 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 electoral process. That's what a convention was. Um, that is buried now nearly 50 years in the past. And so if I want to talk about naturalism, that's, that had the naturalistic uh, um, uh, support behind it. That's just the way it always was. And in that case, it really was the way it always was. From the beginning of parties' national conventions, they were organized exactly that way. Now, there were some evolutions, very kind of unseen low-grade evolutions, from the mid-19th century through 1968 in how the people who were chosen to go to the National Convention were chosen. Mostly, they were chosen by local and state and county level caucuses. And a caucus is a group of people who share some interest. In this case, uh, the caucus were Democratic Party activists. Um, through caucusing to choose who got to go, right? Bob and Elliot both want to go, and you know they're going to see things roughly similarly because they're both from our same uh, county party uh, group, but they might vote for different candidates. They definitely are different people. Who gets to go? Does Bob go or does Elliot go? Well, we raise hands, we caucus, we argue, and then we send one of those two people. Or we get to send five people, and so which of the ten people who want to go, what five people do we send? Because it's really more like multiple delegates come from various parts of the party. Um, and because we have a federal system, and because the parties themselves operate within that federal system, the parties had a uh, similar federal decentralized structure to them. And that meant that the different parties that got to send delegates to the convention, and that they were essentially sending them there to make decisions, right? Not to just go party and, and, and be a show, but to actually make decisions. So it was important who goes. The different local, county, and state parties came up with different rules and different mechanisms for the way that they chose their delegates. Um, and that was the way it was. That's the way it was supposed to be. Local control, state level control, and usually the local party apparatuses and the county party apparatuses would have to abide by state uh, uh, party rules, but the state parties often gave a decent amount of leeway. Um, one of the developments that occurred in the 20th century is that New Hampshire the New Hampshire State Party, uh, and I believe it was the Democratic Party that did this first, uh, decided that they were going to hold a primary election to decide who got to go to the convention from New Hampshire. So they said, okay, let's, let's broaden the group of voters that gets to vote on the delegates to the convention. Much like in the uh, early to mid uh, 19th century, states themselves broadened the base of voters from property-owning white males to uh, they reduced property qualifications, and, and uh, so now all, all white males could vote. Um, the, and then, of course, through constitutional amendments, the, the, uh, the base of voters was, was broadened. The same thing happened with the Electoral College. The first few presidential elections, the electors from each state weren't chosen by a popular vote within that state the way they are now and the way they would come to be by the middle of the 19th century. They were chosen sometimes by the state legislature, they were chosen by a limited franchise. There were a variety of methods that were used in the first few presidential elections to for each state to choose who its electors were. Very quickly settled on a 
statewide popular vote winner take all. All of our electoral votes get decided in a winner take all by the whoever all the eligible voters were. So that developed politically and historically. The same kind of development began to happen in the 20th century with uh, state parties led by New Hampshire, um, and, but not followed by a whole lot. And it wasn't until I believe it was either the 40s or the 50s that Iowa began holding a caucus, a statewide caucus, where all eligible voters from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party could gather and choose their delegates in a way that was slightly different than, it was much more hands-on than a presidential, than a primary election where you just go to a voting booth and vote for your delegates. So those two states were leaders in electoral innovation. They were political reformers uh, in, in the sense that the way things were being done in the old style, uh, they adopted new, more popular methods, right? Methods that, not to say they were more popular with people, that were uh, put the choice into the hands of the people from just the hands of the party insiders. And still they were only putting it in the hands of people who were Democrats or who were Republicans. So they weren't putting it in the hands of everybody. Um, that was a kind of a quiet, really very marginal, unimportant political reform that, was, that could happen because of the decentralized structure of the national parties that New Hampshire could pull this off. Now, 1968 was uh, a transformative year for party politics, and it was transformative because of the, what happened at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, which was tumultuous for a lot of reasons. There were protesters, the delegates deeply disagreed about the Vietnam War, the Democratic Party was uh, at a serious crossroads, uh, the incumbent president who could run for re-election, Lyndon Johnson, was eligible, decided not to seek re-election because of his deep unpopularity over the Vietnam War. Towards the end of his uh, term in office, he could only speak on military bases because uh, protesters were so, uh, were so uh, rowdy and, and virulent that he just really basically could only speak in super protected areas. That was it's a horrible thing to have an incumbent president who's eligible to run for re-election decide that he's not going to run for re-election um, over this particular issue. So there were all kinds of factors that made the convention tumultuous. Um, and it didn't go well. And the, 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 uh, the nominee got destroyed by Richard Nixon in the 1968 election. And the Democratic Party, having had, you know, undergoing a soul-searching moment, uh, undergoing, having just undergone a traumatic convention and then a, and then a loss to uh, Richard Nixon, um, <clears throat> took, took stock and said, something is wrong here. And what they landed on was the nominating process. They said, we are nominating our candidates the wrong way. We should, we should be listening to the people out there, not just the party insiders. Um, now, this was definitely not a critique of the process that was shared by everybody in the Democratic Party. There were a lot of old-timers uh, and uh, party establishment people who, either because of naturalism or just because of their own interests, didn't think there was anything wrong with the process. Or they saw, like, okay, so the 68's convention and what's happening with our party is it's an anomaly. It's not, it's, not a, a, it's not a critique of the nominating process. It is itself just something that happened for a lot of reasons, and let's not go tearing down the system that's been in place for 150 years uh, just because of this. But there, there was a uh, reactive and admittedly, I will say, younger faction in the Democratic Party that was saying the old style of process, the old process, the smoke-filled room, the party bosses, the insiders coming together essentially with, uh, without popular mandate coming together in a city uh, in the summer to choose the presidential uh, nominee, that's, that's a broken system. Uh, 
Behind this was also that in the 60s, there were a lot of both radicals and kind of just garden variety liberals who, who were pushing for more participatory politics. Uh, um, uh, structures that would engage people in, uh, in things more than just giving them a chance to vote. So participatory politics was kind of a big buzzword among you know, political insiders, uh, young political insiders who, as I say, range from sort of garden variety liberals to uh, radical leftists. So the notion that the people ought to be able to choose their presidential nominee, not the party insiders, but the people, that just came naturally uh, to that participatory politics viewpoint. And so when the Democratic Party, after the 68 election, put together a, a commission to take a look at the presidential nominating process, um, the commission had a number of uh, people, including George McGovern, who would be the 1972 Democratic nominee, um, who were younger Democrats who had this participatory notion, who, who believed that it was going to be really important to allow all people, at least all Democrats or even independents, but all the regular folks to choose the party's presidential nominee. Now, that was uh, essentially unanalyzed assumption that that would be a good thing. Right? Nobody came forward and said, here's how this is going to turn our uh, torn apart party into a party that's going to produce the best general election candidate. There was no argument made that this new structure, or at least this new orientation to the nominating process, would produce party unity and would produce a strong uh, um, presidential candidate. In fact, if they had done so, they would have looked at the, at the process and said, oh, well, we may want to do this as an end in itself, give the people the right to choose the presidential nominee, but we're definitely not going to claim that it's going to produce party unity, that it's going to produce uh, a strong general election candidate, or that it's going to produce the kind of organization that is going to help our whoever our eventual nominee is win the general election. The, none of those things emerges clearly from the nominating process that was invented between 68 and 72 and put into place in 72 and that we've had ever since. Um, now, you're, I mentioned Iowa and New Hampshire, and part of, the, part of the reason why Iowa and New Hampshire were put first and have been first ever since is because they were the, among the only states that already had in place popular methods of choosing their delegates. New Hampshire already had a primary and had been using it since I believe it was 1914. Iowa already had a caucus that had been using it since I think sometime in the early 1950s. Um, so they already had experience with essentially popular participatory nominating process. So they went at the front of the line. Now, it also didn't hurt that the, on this commission was George McGovern, who himself had designs for running for president in 1972, eventually did run for president, did get the nomination. It didn't hurt that George McGovern would do well because of his uh, political and demographic profile. He would do well in Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, I don't want to get too conspiratorial and say that McGovern rigged the system so that he would get nominated in 1972. Um, I think that it was more subtle and unintentional than that, which was that, oh, we want to, we want to get more, a more popular, pop, uh, popular vote-based nominating process. We have states that are already doing this. And at the time, Iowa and New Hampshire were not as egregiously unrepresentative of the American people as they have become since 1972. Um, they were still unrepresentative, but because the American population was more Christian and was whiter at that time, those 
two states looked less unlike uh, the rest of the nation than they look now. Now they are clearly demographic and political anomalies. But back then they weren't. So there were decent reasons for putting them first, and it didn't hurt, right? McGovern himself, if there had been two states that had been proposed to go first, and uh, he thought that he wasn't going to do well in those, he himself might have proposed a different system, right? He might have said, oh, hey, let's actually st uh, start with a, st a couple of states that are going to be key in the upcoming presidential election. Let's start with Missouri and, and, and Ohio and possibly Virginia. What, I, I really don't know which states would have been the key swing states in the 1972 election. Um, but uh, he, he didn't do that, nobody really did it, and what this was, it was really a very reactive move on the Democratic Party. They were, there was panic, there was this desire to, 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 to change, this, change the old system, um, there was momentum to do so. The young uh, uh, people in the Democratic Party who wanted a new, less boss, less insider-oriented uh, approach, who wanted a more participatory approach, this was kind of their moment. They pushed for it. There wasn't a long-term analysis done of what is this political reform going to do for our nominating process. So it was actually a wave of political reform, and both parties adopted this in 1972. It was a wave of political reform that was carried out f inside the parties, right? This, th th this was not one of the avenues I talked about. This was party votes um, that changed this particular process. Um, it was, but it was a cru obviously a crucial uh, political reform. And no one really knew at the time. They hadn't done an analysis and there was no experience. No one really knew what it was going to do for presidential politics. It took about a decade. It took two and really maybe three cycles of nominations for candidates themselves to really understand the system, for the insiders, the campaign managers, the, the strategists, to really figure out, like, oh, okay, how does this new system work? And that's the way it always is. When, there are, when, when political reform occurs, it takes a while for the pros to adapt to the new landscape of rules and the new environment of, uh, of, of processes. And that's what happened there. So, but, and it became quickly apparent, with, quickly as in within a decade, that Iowa and New Hampshire were extraordinarily important and that front-runner status really mattered. No one knew about front-runner status in the past because there, was, uh, there, there weren't contests prior to the national convention where candidates would um, uh, win, automatically win big chunks of delegates. There were primaries, California had a primary, there were various primaries, states had them, but they, they didn't have the same connection to the process that, would, that they would have after 1972. So it wasn't really known, and, but it became quickly apparent that you need to be going to the Iowa State Fair the summer before the Iowa caucus. You need to be going to every tiny little dingy town in New Hampshire starting the spring before the New Hampshire primary in the following February. You need to get yourself extremely uh, uh, strongly organized in these two states. One of the things that was nice about that is that they are smaller states and they're very manageable. And you could quite literally meet every important opinion maker in New Hampshire and Iowa uh, in terms of newspaper editors, party insiders, local community leaders, you know, the president of the of, of Rotarians, you could in those two states, because they were small enough, you as a presidential candidate could make all of those connections personally. You would never be able to do that in a larger state like New York, California, or Texas, uh, uh, even if you had an entire year to do so. But um, <clears throat> the so Iowa, New Hampshire became even more important because campaigns themselves oriented themselves towards those states. If you didn't, you did so at your peril. 
Um, and we actually have a really good example from 2020 of a candidate who decided not to follow the traditional path that goes through every dingy newspaper office in New Hampshire and through the Iowa State Fair and all of the different offices, uh, newspaper offices in Iowa. And that was Mike Bloomberg who decided to do two things different than anybody. Uh, one, skip the early voting states and not worry about frontrunner status. And two, have a massively funded air campaign and very little ground game in uh, states that were voting on Super Tuesday. He was essentially doing a trial run for a new kind of approach to the old process. And it didn't work. And it, it really failed spectacularly. And it was, I don't know what it cost him, $160 million. It cost him $160 million to test the proposition that you didn't have to do well in the early voting states and that you didn't have to build a ground operation, that you could saturate the airwaves and that you could get some endorsers and people on your side through whatever kind of connections you had, but that you didn't have to build ground operations. And uh, the, the, the lessons that have been learned from the failure of the Bloomberg campaign are that the old way of campaigning to become president really is, you, you really do need to do that. Now, Donald Trump broke some of the rules uh, in terms of, uh, you know, he mostly held rallies instead of doing the more standard shaking hands and kissing babies kind of thing, but he largely followed the go to the early voting states, uh, you know, uh, put a lot of time and effort into winning and getting frontrunner status, and he clearly, was, you know, he was the front runner, and he enjoyed the front runner status all the way to the nomination, as many front runners do. Not every single front runner from Iowa, New Hampshire goes on to get the nomination, but they mostly do. Um, so Trump, for however unconventional his campaign was, he really did follow most of the he followed the traditional path. He just did a few different things on that traditional path. Bloomberg tried to to uh, uh, forge another path, and it just didn't work. Uh, why did it not work? It didn't work because presidential campaigns, uh, like all of politics, it was adaptive in an evolutionary fashion, and they had adapted to the rules in the system as it existed. And what got you success was well known. Um, and so the campaigns that succeed follow that formula with whatever modern tweaks uh, are uh, available to them because of the candidate and because of the timing, right? Nobody was, was using Twitter and large rallies in the 1990s to win the uh, presidential nominating contest. Um, that wasn't even available. Trump was able to do it, but he did it through the same sort of pathway. Um, so the primary process grew up, like so many of our political processes, grew up not oriented rationally towards what's the best decision-making process to reach this goal. Our goal as a party is clear. We want the most electable, strongest general election candidate. And that is a candidate who will play well with moderate independent voters in the large swing states. That's clear. We, everybody knows that. You don't have to be a political genius to know that that would make for the best general election candidate. Um, neither party has a process, because they both essentially have the same process, that gets them there. Why not? Most political processes are not put together with a rational analysis of, well, what do we want and how do we get that thing? Build a new system that gets us that way. Um, political systems build up historically. They are put into place for reasons that have to do with who made the decisions and what their interests were at that time and what the political landscape was like. And then they uh, create a political system that people get good at and have an interest in keeping the same. And it gets this naturalistic air uh, that people are, well, that's the way it's always been done. Why change it? And it's not necessarily rationally linked to what we want in the decision-making uh, body. For example, the U.S. Constitution is a result of about 35 dudes 
1787 who uh, made particular compromises and came up with particular structures in, for, in a couple of interesting pieces of their environment. One, they didn't have a full range of ideas about what a democratic system would look like. Um, so they weren't choosing from what we now know as the full menu of options for democratic processes. So they were operating essentially with fewer options. Um, also, they were operating not necessarily to create a cohesive, rational, national political system. They were all there as representatives of the states, which themselves already had pre-existing uh, uh, political systems, and they were there to represent the interests of their states. The specific interests of you know, whether they were slave states or whether they were importers or exporters or agricultural or, or, or merchant, but also to the interests of states in general that state governments would preserve their power in the new system. And, <coughs> and so given those two environments, or given those two factors, the sort of lack of options as well as the uh, fact that the people who were making the decisions, they weren't there as essentially intellectuals trying to think of what would be the most rational, cohesive, effective political system for the nation. They were there bargaining to make sure that their states got what they wanted to do, and they were bargaining among different options for a democratic system that were, from their point of view, all that, that were, there was, but that were highly limited. Then we get a constitution, and it creates a political system, and political behaviors begin adapting to that system, and it starts to seem natural, and the constitution itself, the longer it exists, and the more powerful the nation becomes, and the more stable and successful uh, the federal government is, the more it seems like the constitution is is just the way it is. It, it, it gets this naturalistic air, and the idea of criticizing the U.S. Constitution, much less changing it, or certainly replacing it, it just seems like total anathema, and it's crazy. And it may be that it's not a good idea, right? It may just be that the, the long-term stability of our Constitution makes up for all of the other flaws uh, that, uh, that it brings with it. But like any political system, there are from the point of view of a rational, cohesive, effective decision-making system, it falls far short of that kind of analysis. And that's because it wasn't put together with those kinds of criteria in mind by a sort of technocratic lawgiver. Um, almost nothing in our political system has been put together from the point of view of a sort of technocratic lawgiver. Now, what's interesting is that um, we, the United States, have done that. We've done that exact thing. Um, after World War II, when uh, the United States occupied Japan and Germany in conjunction with the Allies, uh, we wrote democratic constitutions for those two nations. And those constitutions were written not by delegates elected by the Germans and the Japanese, um, but by army technocrats. They were basically Harvard and Yale educated army eggheads who studied political systems, who studied constitutions, who studied history, who got together and decided on rational, cohesive, effective, fair, legitimate-seeming democratic systems, and then, I, would say, I was about to say gave them to, forced Germany and Japan into having these, because they were occupied. Um, and those two countries have run very effectively as a result of the fact that we actually gave them really good, thoughtful, up-to-date democratic systems. Those are the rare exceptions uh, of political systems that actually are created out of this sort of, uh, with this technocratic process. Political systems themselves are usually built 
out of political systems, or at least out of politicking, right? The U.S. Constitutional Convention, was, or the, the Constitutional Convention that produced the U.S. Constitution, was really, it was, a, it was a political system that was cobbled together, and that wasn't necessarily a rational political system. It was kind of an accidental political system, in fact. Um, and it was based roughly on the model of the Articles of Confederation, which itself was a wartime document that was written hastily without really thinking about whether it was going to be a, an effective streamlined uh, system for bringing the, the uh, colonies together as independent states to fight the British. Very rarely do political systems have a kind of a rational uh, um, uh, backing behind them. Certainly, to get back to the story of the, of the nominating process that the Democratic Party and then the Republican Party adopted in 1972, um, it, the, it wasn't put together out of some kind of rational analysis about what would get the, uh, the goal of the best general election candidate for each party. It was put together out of politics in a moment of panic, in a moment of crisis, and also in a moment of opportunity with certain assumptions about particip popular participation. Um, and then certain just historical accidents that certain states were already uh, sort of more primed to put at the beginning of the calendar. And without saying, without sitting down and saying, what's this going to do? And even if they had sat down to say, what's this system going to do? Most systems have unintended consequences and uh, unanticipated consequences. And so the, the analysts sitting in a room in 1970 or 71 wouldn't necessarily have been able to come up with the idea that whoever wins Iowa and New Hampshire is the front runner, and that gives them a huge advantage, and only certain kinds of candidates are going to uh, be able to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, they probably wouldn't have been able to anticipate what did in fact evolve within a decade. Uh, so it's often very difficult to do that kind of rational analysis. Though I think that the examples of the German and the Japanese constitutions are really good examples that show that if you put smart people, if you, if you actually have a technocratic constitutional founding group they can produce really smart, really enduring, uh, legitimate, ex effective uh, constitutions that ultimately, even though Germany and Japan were forced to accept these, uh, the people of those nations uh, you know, embraced them pretty well and they work so well for them that they really haven't changed them uh, in, in too many significant ways. Uh, they were really well put together. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, I, don't know, I don't know who, if those guys are still alive, and I'm sure it was all guys, but they should be proud of themselves. Uh, this would actually be a good, a good uh, research project just to find out who they were, uh, uh, the people who put together these constitutions, because it was, it was a group of largely Harvard and Yale-educated eggheads, basically. Okay, so all of that, this is on the world, I'm still actually all in, in, in prologue before even talking about my nomination process. Um, why do I have a critique of the primary? Well, you should probably be able to tell already that it's not a rational system. And so my thought as a political reformer, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'll play one on TV today, quite literally on TV, at least on iPhone. Um, I'm, a, I'm a political reformer who doesn't like the primary system. And I know that I can't necessarily dismantle it from the top down um, or remaking the entire primary process seems problematic to me. Um, in terms of actually getting across the finish line because I would have to, uh, you know, it, it just, I'll just say that I, I'm just, I know that I can't do it that way. So what I, what, what I want to do is I want to take uh, some, I want to bite off something I can chew and swallow, and that's the Oregon presidential primary. And I hope that there's an opportunity to do it by initiative, and if, if, if it turns out that after doing the sort of initial legal analysis, we have to work through the statutory means, uh, in the Oregon legislature. That's a harder thing, but still, also, it's just, it is just convincing 
uh, you know, 31 members of the House and 16 members of the Senate and the governor to, uh, to enact this law. Why do I want what I want? Well, what I want is a couple of things. One, I want the Oregon primary to be more important in the primary process. Uh, partly out of state pride, right? And partly out of the fact that as Oregonians, we know that with our May primary, we almost never are going to have uh, an impact on the final outcome. Even when uh, it went for a really long time in 2008 between Hillary and Obama, and when it went a long time between Hillary and Bernie, uh, Oregon still, we just the, the nomination was wrapped up by the time it arrived in Oregon. So I'm, I'm moving us closer to the front. So uh, the uh, first stipulation is that we're, it's held during the first Saturday, Sunday, and Monday of February. Uh, so I'm moving us ahead in the calendar. A real, the real reason why I want to move us ahead in the calendar, and I have, I have a sort of a holistic perspective on this political reform. I'm not just looking to change Oregon. I'm looking to change the entire nominating process to be one that, to me, is more sensible and rational. Um, and what I want is I want this new system to happen early enough in the 2024 election that it really helps confer frontrunner status and so that the style of campaigning that's required to do well under my new process um, becomes the new early way that candidates have to approach uh, um, uh, campaigning for the presidential nomination, that they actually orient their campaigns towards doing well in this environment. And my hope is, one, that campaigns will, will, will adapt quickly in 2024 to do that, but two, that other states seeing the kind of process that Oregon develops and seeing the positive outcome that it generates, I'm hoping for and really believing in a positive outcome, that other states will follow our lead as many states did when Oregon, uh, back in the early 19th century, uh, enacted democratic uh, direct democracy with the initiative referendum and recall. The Oregon system, we were the first ones to do it. So I'm hoping to, again, a century later, be pioneers of political reform and that uh, we're early enough in the calendar and it's a different enough and beneficial and positive style of, of uh, campaigning and it seems to uh, party leaders to produce stronger general election candidates or at least it produces front runners who are stronger and better versions uh, of uh, eventual uh, general election candidates that there will be a cascading set of reforms that follow this initial reform. So my overall strategy is to, one, work at the state level instead of the national level, even though I have a problem with the national primary system, um, to work at the state level and to work in a way that is one of the easier avenues of political reform. Now, I'm also asking for a pretty radical change. And the very first section called selection is the radical change. And this is the most radical thing. And so I, I will admit already that I'm really shooting for the stars here. Because this is, while I'm looking for one state instead of the whole system, um, <clears throat> uh, I am actually not just trying to incrementally change our primary. Um, I'm, I'm changing in a fundamental way because the selection mechanism is going to be through sortition. And sortition is uh, written about in the, in, in the book uh, that you're assigned to read for this week. Uh, and there's a, there, are, there are philosophical and historical arguments for sortition as a, not the only method of selection in a democratic society, but as one of the tools that we use more often. And sortition is drawing lots, 
or random selection. The idea of random selection is that uh, the people who are making the decision are chosen at random, and so there's not some kind of exogenous factor that is giving uh, the people who are ultimately making the decision some form of orientation or another. We randomly select 500 Oregon Democrats, if it's the Democratic Party, Oregon Republicans, if it's the Republican Party, if the Green Party is going to have a, a, a convention, or the Libertarian Party, 500 people registered uh, from them. So random selection, in this case, not of, five, of all Oregonians, but of people who come, who are registered in one or other of the parties. Now, if you're not registered as a Democrat or a Republican, if you're, in a, if you, if you're uh, uh, um, not aligned, um, then you will never get picked in this system. So my version of sortition is not 500 uh, registered voters in Oregon for each convention, but random selection from within the parties. So it's not stupendously radical in the sense that I'm taking out of the hands of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party who, uh, um, their, uh, who, who gets our delegates, right? Um, because what's ultimately going to be voted on here because in the new system, the people that go to the national convention, I didn't finish that part of the story, but you probably know this already, the delegates who get sent to the summer convention are pledged delegates. They are pledged to a particular presidential candidate. So what are 500 people going to do? So my, our sortition is 500 randomly selected people. They are going to then choose uh, who the pledged delegates go to. And then the rest of the Democratic Party system happens the way it normally happens. You have primaries and caucuses. Those states choose who their delegates or pledge delegates are going to be. They go to the convention in the summer. We're doing what every other state is doing. We're just doing it with a group of people that is randomly selected and smaller. And then what we're going to have is these 500 people choose these pledge delegates at a convention, a three-day convention. And so what I'm actually doing here is I'm doing a kind of old-style mixture with a radical proposal. The old style is that way back, prior to 1972, the way that the people who got to go to the summer convention got chosen was in a local convention. And that convention was sometimes just a meeting of people. It was a caucus meeting. It could have been held at a bar. It could have been held in an office. Uh, it could have been held uh, in, in, in private homes. Um, but it was party insiders picking which of the party insiders were going. Here... It's not party insiders picking which party insiders go. It's randomly selected members of the Democratic and Republican electorate, uh, registered electorate, choosing which people go and choosing who they're pledged to. It's the sortition thing that's the most radical. The essentially small convention that chooses who goes to the bigger convention is the old style. And the pledge delegates is the new style. So I'm, I'm mixing the old and the new, right? And I'm also adding a radical new element, but a radical new element that, if you went all the way through uh, the, the reading against democracy, um, is, uh, or against elections, sorry, not against democracy, against elections, is, is a democratic mechanism, sortition, that has been used effectively in various contexts. And I'm saying, I think it would be very effective here. Now, why would it be very effective? One of the things about random selecting, as I mentioned earlier, is that the benefit of it is that 
it gives you people who don't who aren't picked who have a necessarily pre-existing set of political views or uh, predilections. It gives you a random selection of them. Now, what you're going to get in these 500 people is you're going to get some closed-minded people. You're going to get some people who arrive with a candidate who there's their preferred candidate, and they're going to be unmovable. But you're also going to get people who arrive with no preferred candidate, and you're going to get people who arrive with a preferred candidate but who have an open mind. So we're going to get a mixture of all of those different types. Um, that doesn't happen in a standard caucus or primary. Right? In a standard caucus or primary, what you get is people going with, in a, in a primary where you just go into a voting booth or you mail in your, your, your ballot or you touch a screen, knowing who you're going to vote for. Right? You, your, your mind is made up already. You've been campaigned at and your mind is made up. In a caucus, you tend to go, some people go not knowing and they have an open mind, uh, but they, they get convinced in that moment or they convince other people in that moment. So there's, there's even in the caucus, which is way more participatory, there's not a whole lot of openness. And what I think is really beneficial about sortition is that it produces an environment in which people who are going to be the deciders, these 500 people are the deciders, um, it produces the greater likelihood of diverse opinions and open-mindedness. And it also gets some people who represent all kinds of voters. Who goes to a primary election? Engaged party voters, loyalists. Who goes to a caucus? super engaged party loyalists, right? So our standard mechanisms, the primary and the caucus, both select for a particular group of the party, right? One of the reasons why the traditional nominating process as it's existed since 1972 doesn't produce the most electable, best, strongest general election candidates is because the people voting in those elections are themselves unrepresentative of their party. Even if we ignore the whole frontrunner status of New Hampshire and Iowa, and just even if we had a one-day primary where everybody in all the states voted, voted at the same time, um, uh, the people who would go and vote would not be, they would be the highest intensity voters. And uh, they would, the voter turnout rate for primaries is well below 50%. Traditionally, they are a, uh, less than half of the party's voters, and they are the most intense. So of course they're the ones who have different ideas about who the best candidate is, right? If you're a hardcore uh, progressive, you're gonna come out for Bernie, right? And um, if the, a particular state has uh, maybe a bunch of hardcore progressives, but even more kind of moderate Democrats, and the moderate Democrats don't, aren't as engaged, so they don't go to the caucus or don't go to the primary, the hardcore Bernie people are gonna choose Bernie, who's, who, uh, I won't say he's not, the, not an electable candidate, but is probably not the strongest candidate to unite all of the different people in the Democratic Party. Um, this system gets us all kinds of different people who might not themselves ever even vote in a primary. Um, it's gonna get some people who are hardcore supporters of different candidates who would definitely vote, who are very loyal. It's gonna get us all the things. Random selection, creates a cross-section of people. And if the reason why sortition is, for me, the right reform is that what we're trying to do ultimately is pick the strongest general election candidate. And the strongest general election candidate is somebody who can appeal to the broadest range of potential voters. And so we're creating, in this case, a, 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 a sample of that. We're actually generating not uh, through voluntary behavior, which is what a primary caucus is, but through random forced behavior. And that's actually one of the important things is 
Location, the second thing is just really details. Obligation. Electors shall be legally bound to attend unless excused by the Secretary of State upon presenting just cause for excusal, blah, blah, blah. You can, you, you either, you read it and you can reread it for the details if you want. But basically, there might be people who never have voted ever in their lives. They're registered Democrat. Probably they would have voted, but they, they registered as a Democrat, you know, when they were 16 in high school and you got you automatically registered. Um, and they get picked randomly and they are forced to go and be one of these uh, electors. And you might just be like, well, but that's terrible. Volunteerism is mo one of the most important, uh, and liberty are one of the most important uh, pieces of our political culture. You can't force people to participate in the political system. Yeah, you can. Uh, and I'm proposing that you, that you do. There is only one other model of forcing people, Americans, to do things for the government uh, besides pay taxes and obey the law, and that is jury duty. And that I mentioned actually that the people can be excused from this obligation for the same reason they can be excused uh, from jury duty. So there is already a model for forcing reluctant people to doing something that's their civic duty. This is a different, unfamiliar civic duty, selecting the state's pledged delegates for the presidential nomination, but it has the same structure as uh, a jury. Now, the idea of this, the entire background idea of this whole thing, sortition is the means to an end. The three-day convention is meant to be a model of deliberative democracy. And I will definitely confess that the driving force behind this reform is the desire to have more deliberative processes in our democratic system. Um, so that's, that's my bias, but that's also part of my selling point, is that deliberation is a really great thing in a democracy. We don't have enough of it. In fact, we have too much argumentation and fighting and not enough deliberation. And I'm, again, trying to sneak deliberation into our political system in one small corner, not even into our political system, into our party nominating process, hoping that deliberation will look good and that it will then gain legitimacy and gain momentum. So, so there are two kind of big picture uh, um, goals in my political reform movement, which is one, to have Oregon pioneer this brand new type of, uh, of presidential primary that hopefully other states will adopt and that that will transform the presidential primary. And even bigger picture, that Americans will see an example of deliberative democracy in action and they'll go, that looks good. That's totally unfamiliar. Sortition and a three-day convention, that's crazy, but then they'll see it because this will be very high profile. If this actually happens, the Oregon three-day convention is going to get national attention. It's going to be a huge part of the story. Um, it's going to be, it is going to be a political reform that gets a stupendous amount of attention. And so if it goes well, and I have faith that it will go well, right? And it is faith. It's not certainty. But if it goes well, Americans will have a high-profile example of two different democratic reforms, or excuse me, systems or processes that we're totally unfamiliar with, sortition and deliberation. Now, the, why is it going to be deliberative? It's going to be enforcedly deliberative, and the, the jury model is, again, juries are deliberative bodies. Juries come in not without prior knowledge and without any kind of legal experience, um, and they're exposed only to the facts, and then they deliberate and have to come up with a consensus, uh, a, a consensus uh, verdict. 
Um, and in fact, uh, as a small aside, the Supreme Court just ruled that states that don't have a um, unanimous jury rule, that that's unconstitutional, it violates the Sixth Amendment. The only state left in the country that allows someone to be convicted of a crime if 10 or more of the 12 jurors vote for guilty is the state of Oregon. So our um, non-unanimous jury rule has just been struck down by the Supreme Court in a case that came through Louisiana. Uh, but Louisiana, since through ballot initiative, got rid of that rule. Um, Oregon is the only state remaining with that rule, and now that the Supreme Court has told us we can't have that rule. Juries have to be unanimous. Uh, that's just an aside. The delegates here are not going to be voting. They don't have to get to unanimity. But in uh, uh, the final two sections, which describes the process, and I won't go through it because I'm already kind of running long on this presentation, but the process that has been generated is going to enforce, because it's a three-day convention, it's going to essentially, I won't say enforce, it's going to create the opportunity for deliberation. And these 500 people are there for three days. And so those 72 hours, minus sleep and eating, uh, it are essentially, they have nothing to do but deliberate. And the candidates are going to be allowed to have access to them in a completely different way. So the, it's deliberative democracy, and what it is is we have direct candidate engagement. And so again, what I'm looking for here and creating a specific uh, um, uh, structure and process to, to generate this is that presidential candidates come to the convention and they and their people speak directly to, in a controlled forum, speak directly to these delegates. That's not how presidential candidates talk to primary and caucus voters, right? They talk to them at rallies, they talk to them through television and radio ads, they talk to them through social media, they talk to them through uh, their surrogates going on television, they talk to them through their activists going and knocking door to door. They talk to them in a lot of, in a lot of ways. They almost never talk to them in a forum, an argumentative forum, uh, with people who are essentially there their job is there to be open-minded. And they're modeled after the jury where you can't campaign them in advance. They come in, they come in with whatever preconceived notions they have and whatever political predilections, but they don't come in having already been campaigned at by the candidates. So they're as close to jury uh, uh, members as possible. And then the candidates have an enforced opportunity to, to speak to them in a way that I think we would love politicians to have to speak to voters, which is, rationally and uh, in a competitive environment but not an argumentative environment. So the whole process that's laid out um, for the can open candidate forum and the way the staff members are able to answer questions and engage in discussions with these 500 delegates is intended to produce not just a deliberative atmosphere among the 500 but a discursive and deliberative relationship between the candidates and the candidates' campaign team. It's not just the candidates, they get to bring, I think it's up to 25 staff members to engage. So direct candidate engagement, deliberative democracy, and what we get here is we get a discussion, rather than the usual, essentially, uh, battle and argument that a normal campaign happens to be. So what I'm saying about this method it's kind of radical because the idea of randomly selecting the people who are going to select the delegates who are going to pick the presidential nominee it seems very unusual, but the randomness is a really important factor. 
Uh, and again, randomness is drawn on uh, um, surveys. Like surveys are more reliable when they're done more randomly. This is going to be a more reliable representation of the voters of Oregon. Now, I really, if I wanted to really remake the entire Democratic and Republican Party nominating process, I wouldn't do Oregon. I would pick a different state like Virginia or Ohio or Florida, and I would bring that to the top of the calendar, and I would bring this process uh, into it. Um, so I, I, I'm picking not necessarily the, the, the best version of what should be the early voting state, but a better version than I would New Hampshire. But mostly what I'm demonstrating, hoping to demonstrate, I should say, with the success of this particular reform, is that we can have a different style of politics. Um, we can have a deliberative style, which is going to mean that People, voters, in this case the 500 uh, uh, electors, are going to engage with each other intellectually and on the issues and on candidate electability and on character and on whatever it is that they want to talk about. But we're going to see democracy not as voters essentially being the recipients of messages and arguments from candidates and then voters going out and doing whatever they want. We're going to see an open process of deliberation and discussion. And that is more democratic, in my view, than voters secretly in a ballot taking whatever that has been said to them and however they've been manipulated or appealed to or spoken to or successfully argued in a particular election and secretly voting their thing. That's democratic too. I'm not saying that the secret ballot's not democratic. This is also democratic. It's just unfamiliar to us. And I want it to get a good show get be part of the national uh, storyline the national discourse the national discourse so that the benefits of sortition the benefits of deliberation the benefits of this kind of candidate engagement can actually be seen in a high profile way and have a chance to then change people's minds now naturalism is the big enemy here getting back to this it's never been done this way we can't do it this way the, the system that we have has been around forever, right? Well, it's only been around since 1972, and I'll grant that that's a long time, certainly not forever. The system that existed before that existed for more than a century, uh, nearly a century and a half, and it was swept away in a four-year period. So, you know, we can, we can make and remake. But I will acknowledge that the sense that this is just too different and too weird is going to work against this particular movement. So I'm anticipating that the tallest hill to climb here is sortition. Um, the idea of a three-day nominating convention that's televised and that engages the candidates and the selectors in this particular way, I think that's less, it's still unfamiliar, but I think it's less radical. You can't randomly select people to make decisions in a democracy. Part of what the reading for this week was, was a demonstration that, yeah, you can actually, and if the goal is to have the people rule themselves, sortition in some ways is a superior democratic mechanism to certain kinds of elections, right? Caucuses seem very democratic. There are people getting together in a room and arguing and discussing and then choosing their delegates. Uh, but caucuses are stupendously undemocratic because there are a lot of people who don't have the time, energy, or desire to go to a caucus, and so participation is extremely low, right? Here, participation is enforced, and so you don't have a choice. And while that, I think, does really kind of, that is going to rub wrong with the uh, American political culture, um, we have an example, jury. Like, your jury, jury duty is a civic responsibility. Choosing the president, or choosing the, the, the nominee for president, 
should be could be seen as a, as a civic responsibility. It isn't seen that way, but there's no reason why it's any crazier to think that this is a civic responsibility than that you have to go to a courthouse and be on a jury is a civic responsibility. Uh, I mean, granted, our system of justice would fall apart if we didn't have juries, and so juries are probably need to be staffed by people who are forced to do it. Our presidential primary system won't fall apart without uh, um, enforced sortition participation, um, but it's not a great system as it exists. We need a different way, and uh, this, is an, this is my proposal for it. Um, all right, uh, at this point, I think that, I that I, I'm going to be going beyond uh, sort of explaining and analyzing and talking about where this comes from and into more of a direct sell. One of the things I will note is that after all this, it, and uh, my next step is to build a coalition behind this. And what I might have to do as I build that coalition is give in on some of these ideas, right? Because if I really want this to win, I need it to get on the ballot. I need to have enough money to uh, launch a successful campaign. I need to get the signatures to get on the ballot in the first place. I need money to pay the lawyers to figure all this stuff out. Um, I need resources and support and a coalition that's as broad as possible is going to be the greatest way to success. If important coalition partners, people that I'm just like, well, I really don't want to and can't do without you, don't like certain of these aspects, as a political reformer, I'm going to have to decide when and where I'm going to give in and when and where I'm going to draw the line. Right? Um, I can't answer how, how I would do that right now. Um, I know that sortition, to me, is a super important component of this whole thing, but it's not a deal breaker necessarily. I would love to not have to give it away to build a broader coalition, but really any of these things. Moving it to the front of the calendar, uh, I would love not to have to give that up because I think that it will, uh, if, if we can help confer front-runner status, we're gonna get a lot more national attention. If that seems a little too radical to people who might wanna join the coalition, then I'm probably gonna uh, probably want to give on this uh, as well. Political reform is not necessarily a happy, pretty thing in terms of like, okay, I want to win and I want to remain as pure to my vision as possible. But if I have to kind of dilute my view or vision or transform it a little bit in order to be able to get some kind of a win, I, I have to be willing to do that, or at least I have to be willing to pay the price if I'm going to be intransigent on my ideas. Uh, but, to get back to the beginning of the class, what I really do have to do, and this is going to be a hard thing in building a coalition, and it's going to be an even harder thing in trying to get voter support for this, um, is I have to fight the naturalism that this isn't democratic, sortition's not democratic, and you can't do a primary this way, it's never been done this way, it's crazy, right? Well, until 1972, neither party let the voters decide who the nominees were. That could have and should have seemed crazy. Um, this is going to seem crazy. Um, and uh, I have to find a way to at least say it's not crazy, and it's also not so radical, and uh, it's worth a try. And really, it's just one state. Another reason why I'm taking a state-level approach instead of a national approach is that I'm, I'm playing into the laboratories of democracy idea. Uh, innovative ideas get tested in a smaller container so they don't wreck the entire national system. Um, if this turns out to be a disaster, it doesn't wreck the nominating process that's already in place. Um, the nominating process that's already in place is really not the greatest, so uh, it could, it, it could it, you know, a couple dings isn't necessarily going to make it tr uh, tremendously worse, but I'm not going to wreck the entire way that presidential candidates are chosen with this particular thing. 
Um, so it's the opportunity that's available to me, it's a lower bar, it's an easier avenue, uh, but also it contains any potential unforeseen consequences, because I really don't know what that three-day convention would look like. I have a, uh, a certain level of faith that it would actually be a really visible, beautiful example of deliberative democracy in action, and that the candidates, because they're constrained in how they interact with, with uh, the, the uh, delegates there, um, are going to uh, engage in a kind of politics that we're going to find very refreshing. But I really don't know. It, could, it really could end up being a total disaster. And if it is, it'll be relatively easy to repeal, and we'll go back to the primary system the way that we had it before, and it will only be one state out of 50-plus, uh, uh, the nominating uh, contests, and so it won't wreck the entire system. All right, well, there it is. Uh, in next class, we're going to be talking about another possibly even more radical idea because it's bigger and you know really does fundamentally transform some of our uh, democratic processes, the presidential referendum. Until then, I'm Jack Miller, day 39. I'll see you guys later.